Hello and welcome to the Leadership Well podcast with insights and guests to empower learning, leading, and living well. I am delighted to be your producer and host, Natalie Butoh-Wills. Information and recordings are available at the Leadership Well Hub, www.leadershipwell.com. You are invited to tune in. Our guest today is Associate Dean and Professor Stephen Bender of Seattle University's School of Law and previously with the University of Oregon as Faculty, Associate Dean, Director of the Green Business Initiative, and Co-Director of the Law and Entrepreneurship Center. A national academic leader on immigration law and policy, award recipient from the Association of American Law Schools Minority Group Section, and Oregon Book Award for General Nonfiction. He's an elected member of the American Law Institute and previously served as co-president of the National Society of American Law Teachers. Professor Bender is a prolific author, including his books on Mea Colpa, Lessons on Law and Regret from U.S. History, Latinos Law and the American Imagination, Everyday Law for Latinos Latinas, and Compassionate Migration and Regional Policy in the Americas. Welcome, Professor Bender. Thanks for having me. So your current project, which has been uh, quite a a long-term endeavor, along with your co-editors, is uh, Critical Justice, Systemic Advocacy in Law and Society. I understand that you've been working on this book for about a decade? Pretty close to a decade now. It is a long process um, to... Um, create a book that's really unlike much of anything as a textbook that's out there. Uh, um, trying to make up for many, many years of of an absence of, of this knowledge in the student at whatever stage we get them, whether law students or before or after, um, is is quite an endeavor. And also to try and synthesize um, literally thousands of articles in the literature. Um, and um, really decades and centuries of lawyering and advocacy more generally on social justice issues and trying to blend those two approaches has been um, has been challenging and get it into something that's about 1,200 um, or so pages. Um, and so it has been a, almost a decade-long uh, project. But the pandemic has given an opportunity to really uh, reflect deeply and and get this you know and get this book um, finished um, and I'm very grateful to my two co-authors uh, and uh, you know for for uh, being able to carve time into life as we know it these days. Yes, yeah, so certainly uh, this time has presented challenges and uh, opportunities and. Uh, even though it's been a decade that you've been working on it, it does seem very timely. And as you say, uh, these issues are um, long transcend uh, a decade and, and even um, uh, centuries before that. Uh, in the in the draft intro, which uh, I appreciate you sharing, it, it suggests that the purpose is to provide a reliable, accessible, diverse, and adaptable resource for those seeking justice, including teachers, students, practitioners, organizers, and activists with the hope that they can tailor basic points into actionable knowledge in today's 
context. So uh, share with us more about your purpose and also how you've seen the landscape uh, uh, shift over over this decade and, and how it is currently today. Sure. So one of the things, the book in its, in its title um, talks about um, systemic um, injustice and systemic and the need for systemic justice. So it's a terminology that that people are increasingly familiar with. You're hearing it uh, literally on the streets. Uh, people talking in terms of the need for changing systems um, and for um, systemic reform. And so what this book really tried to do is situated law as a system within a variety of other systems that the law is really empowering um, and enabling. So everything from economic systems like capitalism to the healthcare system, uh, to the criminal justice police system, to the educational system, um, and all of those and subsystems, however you wanna break them down, all have sort of law as the central catalyst. Um, and so, um, while we normally expect that when students come to law school in particular, and that's our audience, that we're going to try and glorify the law, this book does the exact opposite. It really breaks down the law and says the law by design is meant to fail um, in delivering justice. If justice is what we mean by, or if what we mean by justice is equal justice, equality. Uh, the law by design is going to deliver something different. And so we implicate law and within uh, the failure of equal justice um, as experienced on the, in the street, uh, as experienced in homes, as experienced in the workplace, and sort of the lived re material reality uh, of groups and the public. Uh, and so it is a, it is a, it is a book uh, that you necessarily, if you were touting um, legal education, if you were touting like the American Bar Association, the glory of the legal profession, you wouldn't necessarily hand out the, and hold up this book and say, it's all in here how great the legal profession is, how great the law is and has been, because this is a very critical approach and takes up the question of, all right, if law has been implicated and really the driving force behind systemic injustice, uh, uh, then, and the lack of equal justice, then what from there, what next, what can make that change? Who can make that change? How can lawyers work with people trying to make things change for the better? And how can law students and other students um, learn and sort of serve their role? Um, toward that end. So it's trying to do all those things um, at once, which is a sprawling project and why both pages and time it's taken so long. But at the same time, um, the, the systems that are embedded have been in place sometimes for centuries, you know, since colonialism. Um, and so uh, the resistance to that has been ongoing, uh, but to try and capture all of that in one um, snapshot and, and, and just sort of uh, record all of that history and all of the knowledge is something that's a challenge to do. Um, and we, we certainly have found that to be the case. And we can talk later about some of the values we try and instill in the reader and in law students and in legal education 
that are necessary to counter those centuries of, of really ongoing injustice. So interesting because uh, you you teach uh, law students, and as you said, also this book can be applied by um, those even if they're not law students. And so in some ways, these are preparing people for careers in law and also, as you're saying, taking a, a perhaps critical approach of, of the history. And so one of the things that, that, that comes to mind is the Einstein quote about uh, that we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking that we use when we uh, when we created them. So presumably you are your intentions is to is to be able to work with uh, this generation of students, let's say, um, and those who also are um, are seeking justice to help in in shifting the, the system uh, that is. So what is your um, how do you see that happening? How do you see shifting the legal system to better address uh, justice and injustice? So the same people that created the system indeed aren't going to be the ones to fix it because their self-interest is in what they created. In fact, uh, we make the clear point that the law is failing by design and it's not a broken system. It's functioning exactly as it was intended to do which is to really normalize all of the underlying injustice, all of the underlying mechanisms and levers and strengths that sort of uh, preordain and predetermine uh, the injustice along identity uh, and other lines that, we've, that we're seeing in society were all emplaced and empowered through law. And by design, they were that. So it's not like it's a broken system that needs to be reformed or fixed. And it's not necessarily going to be those people who created that system because they don't necessarily have a self-interest in fixing things. One of the insights from critical uh, legal scholars, critical race theory in particular, is the interest convergence theory. That in fact, there will be progress for, in that case, uh, a minority, um, African-Americans, if, if it aligns with the societal interest in doing that. And it did in the civil rights era, in the Brown versus Board of Education 50s and the Civil Rights Act 60s, there was a brief bleeding alignment of keeping out communist alternatives um, by showing that, that we can undo sort of facially discriminatory laws. We can deliver formal legal equality. Um, but that and meaningful everyday equality um, and economic equality are two completely different um, things. So it's so the reform, the changing systems and changing ourselves is really going to come from those who are affected uh, most by the system. And it's going to come from their organizing and their bringing about culture shifts while ameliorating everyday problems. And so we try and show how advocates and lawyers can sort of fit in and make those, you know, and, and make the organizing and the culture shift part of the legal work that they do. Because lawyers don't always think in those terms. They think of uh, where can I file a lawsuit and how soon can I file it? And that lawsuit's gonna be transformative. Well, few are. Um, and even Brown versus Board of Education, probably what we could all say the most monumental um, Supreme Court decision that many of us could think of has been undercut from the time it was issued by enforcement problems uh, and by private action 
um, to thwart it. And schools are as segregated and unequal as they ever were. You can name another Supreme Court case that seems judicial outcome, that seems transformative, same uh, outcome. Um, so what does that mean for transformation? It means transformation is not going to be uh, is not necessarily going to be embodied in those sort of formal legal equality pronouncements. It's going to require more of a societal shift. It's going to require more of a building of power to protect those gains from backlash and backsliding, which always seems to happen in the history of struggle and in the, and in the everyday systems that continue on um, despite struggle. Often, uh, I, I think and have said that uh, laws can change. However, it, it takes longer uh, often for, for the culture to shift and, and the mindset. And so it seems like those need to go together. And, and as you say, sometimes there's, um, there are certain cliches or, or terminology that are often used. So, for example, reform and, um, and justice. And it takes longer for people to get beyond that and what that means. And and it seems like we're we're at a time that that not only is there increased awareness, um, but also the importance and the push for for people to do something beyond the idea of cliche, beyond the idea of hashtags, uh, beyond the idea of theory. And it, it sounds like that's one of the things that you're advocating is as uh, a as a more systemic action and a different way of thinking. It is. Uh, courts oftentimes don't like to be in front of, of making justice. They kind of put their finger to the wind like a legislator would and say, okay, what's public opinion doing? Um, so you really didn't see transformative decisions in the LGBT arena, for example, until public polls were really showing that there was a shift in culture uh, and in public attitudes. Um, and, and even if a court does get ahead of things, um, um, that, that is, that's virtually certain that there's going to be some backlash or undercutting. And even in areas where there is, uh, where public, uh, you know, where, where, the, where the public seems to be building and their support for something, uh, there is still uh, the potential for backlash because the public doesn't always translate to legislative and judicial outcomes. In other words, um, studies of power, and we include um, from from two notable authors, Gillens and Page, we include sort of their empirical study of who really does have power uh, to deter, and, and we define power by the ability to get what you want, if you want to put it in really simple terms the ability to get the policy outcome you want. And it's not the general public um, in number. It is really, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's elites uh, and corporate structures and moneyed structures that tend to be able to control outcomes despite the general public. Um, so, so really that's an important lesson that the courts may not act unless there's a sense of finger to the wind, the general public's behind it, but then at the same time, power can undo uh, a lot of those gains. Raw power, um, unprincipled power, despite us being in a time where we think we're not, you know, we're not in the rule of kings anymore and we have principled uh, and accountable democracy. Uh, the book really demonstrates that that, uh, that that is for the most part an illusion and the sooner that 
people seeking change uh, accept that, the better. And then what do you do about it? Some of the things that we've begun to suggest and talk about here. There is so much um, power really in, um, in the concepts of, of motivation and uh, understanding what does motivate people, what motivates a society and uh, the shift in that and how um, and where that power comes from and, and how how things can change. And as you say, you know, motivation is definitely an important part of that. And, uh, you know, we, we agree um, about the importance of the law. And however one thinks of it, you know, whether whether it's good or not good or, or, or whether the intentions behind that. But certainly there's a lot of power in the law and, and those who are involved in the law, whether as, as lawyers or lawmakers or, uh, or or justices or the importance really of being aware of the law in general. Citizens, you know, anybody who wants to affect change, anybody who wants to advocate, uh, just being aware. And I think the importance certainly of increasing our knowledge and of our, and our awareness and as you say, you know, some things that people can do. So being that the book is not out yet, what are some of your, let's say, practical tips or insights that you can, uh, that you can share? One of them is, is a really important one, and we really start out with it. And that is uh, a lot of law school classes, legal education, um, treat the students as exceptional. Um, entering the honorable profession, an exceptional profession, um, they're going to have knowledge that's going to solve problems, that's going to save the world. And we back it up and say, actually, what you need as a value is humility, uh, because the, a lot of the knowledge that you're going uh, to use uh, to find your place within ongoing through the centuries even struggle against injustice is going to come from the bottom from the groups at the bottom of societal hierarchies and castes. Learning to value what they have to say about their lived material reality, about their experience, and learning to have humility about what you can do with that and the peace that you can provide and not being that savior uh, for them, but actually working in a collaborative manner with those groups to help them build power, um, to apply the things that you know as a legally trained professional, which is knowledge of the legal system, to see where legal remedies and and you know may fit in, um, and oftentimes to protect them in their organizing, whether it's a union, whether it's a protest, whether it's other groups, um, are important things that a lawyer can do. But at the same time, being humble about um, I'm not as a lawyer. Uh, somebody who knows more than you and who knows what you need. Um, you're the one, you're the group who knows what you want. And all I can do is listen to you and try and help you get there. Um, and at the same time, a value that the book tries to impart is that these struggles have outlived most other advocates in their life and probably will outlive you. As much as there's an urgency for immediate change, we know that change swings like a pendulum um, and, and, and equal justice goes back to injustice, even if there seem to be dramatic breakthroughs, which Brown versus Board of Legal Education is simply one of those that's, that seemed to be a high point a summit, but, not, but now is seen as sort of uh, a disappointment in the actual changes. And so 
for a law student and anybody else involved in the struggle, they need to value self-preservation. They need to preserve themselves for the long haul of the struggle. And the book really tries to imagine something that's different than most other books and most other lawyering, which is sort of um, atomized around a single legal case or a contract. And then you're done and you won and you celebrate. No, how do you really uh, fit in um, to uh, re building relationships with affected groups and struggling for uh, justice as you can with your knowledge of the law for the long haul. Those are important values. We think that really humility, self-preservation are, are values that aren't limited to lawyers and the legal profession. That's something that everybody could benefit from. This is true. Uh, definitely the idea of learning um, and uh, or being always lifelong learners and being willing to listen and have that humility, as you say. And I think that's something that uh, uh, you know, it's definitely coming up these days in terms of uh, recognizing our own bias or recognizing our own prejudice and um, that we we can't necessarily just, you know, think even though people may have good intentions that it's about just doing uh, what we think is best for others or helping others. It, it's uh, definitely a collaborative process and um, always recognize, like you say, the opportunity to um, to learn. So what what are what is something that you've learned over this time uh, yourself personally and um, as as an author as an academic as a parent as a as a multicultural citizen what is your what is your hope for the future? Um, I I once ended a book um, on the friendship of of Robert Kennedy and Cesar Chavez with a quote when Cesar Chavez was on on a show maybe it was the Dick Cavett show. Um, back in the 60s when he was asked if he was an optimistic person and he said, yes, I have a lot of faith in people. Um, and hope and optimism have been something that have been a challenge at times when you realize how daunting the centuries back embeddedness and really how natural a lot of injustices have become. Um, and some people have said that it's only, you know, why is there so much uh, uh, racial unrest um, and unhappiness and organizing around that today. Um, and one of the explanations that, that really resonates, I think, with, the, with what we experienced behind the book is that when you have the chance during a pandemic to simply shut off things uh, and, and really self-reflect, you really start then to see what really is going on. Uh, and the African-American community said just that, you know, now you actually see um, uh, those who aren't black for the first time, what is really being faced. Um, and so that sort of self-reflection is really important. But hope is something that we try and end the book on a hopeful note, because how can you self-preserve yourself if you're not hopeful? Um, it's hard to really dedicate yourself to a lifetime of advocacy. Uh, for vulnerable communities and populations if you don't have hope. Uh, because if things are hopeless, uh, then you just say it's a dystopian world and, and, and why fight? So really, I think it is critical for self-preservation to, you know, to hang on to hope um, and to realize that you know, maybe like planting a seed, you're not going to eat the apple in your generation, but you've enabled a future generation to eat. Um, and that's a satisfying life, uh, a life lived well, and a life lived in struggle, 
which is more and more needed these days. You raise several good points, including that uh, during this time of more containment and perhaps reflection and challenge, it's bringing more or some of the problems to light. And that increases awareness and provides an opportunity for people in our society to do something with a long-term approach and impact. Thank you, Professor Bender, for your work, for continuing to plant those seeds amongst students and advocates, and for sharing your insights and hope. Well wishes as you continue and complete this project. We look forward to that coming out. It was, it was very worthwhile to talk with you. Thanks so much, Natalie. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the Conscious Council Mindful Managers program today. Information and recordings will be available at leadershipwell.com.